You're listening to The Progress Report on the Harbinger Media Network, presented by Passage, the online journal of left Canadian thought and opinion, which you can find at readpassage.com. But here on the network, you can hear great shows like The Alberta Advantage, with a recent episode on a subject close to my heart, Ukrainian Nazis, and I've also been enjoying Kino Lefter's James Bond series, Gun Barrel. So, you know, join us. We're building a community that's challenging right-wing corporate media dominance from coast to coast, and you can get access to exclusive shows and other supporter-only content at harbingermedianetwork.com. Now, on to the show. Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney, and we're recording today here in Amiskwichiwa Skygen, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory. Uh, Lorian Hardcastle is a law professor at the University of Calgary who specializes in health law. Uh, Lorian, you recently wrote a very spicy and provocative piece for Maclean's that, uh, that we're here to talk about today. Uh, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So before we get into the details of your story, I think it's worth foregrounding kind of where we're at right now uh, with regards to the COVID-19 pandemic and this, just how bad the situation is on the ground here. So recording this here is the, like the morning of November 19th. Um, you know, we now have more than 10,000 active COVID-19 cases in Alberta at the moment. Uh, the amount of COVID infections uh, where the source of the infection is unknown is north of 85% in the past week, which again is very scary. Contact tracing at this point is effectively broken. Uh, we're getting reports from contact tracers that they are working on positive cases from two weeks ago. And as we have read and heard from many professionals, effective contact tracing is a linchpin of an effective COVID response. And it just isn't working right now. Uh, our hospitals are nearing and at some cases are at their breaking point. Our ICU bed capacity, the metric that Dr. Henshaw kind of initially held up as the key indicator of how we're all handling the pandemic is, is north of 80% at the moment. And there's also the very real possibility that like, even if those beds exist, there just simply might not be the workers, the nurses, the doctors, the support staff to actually provide those people the care that they need. Uh, we have acute, we have active outbreaks currently in 12 hospitals, but also, um, you know, 312 schools, you know, 67 long-term care or supportive living sites, you know, five separate oil sands facilities. You know, we're at, we're at 443 deaths. And perhaps most troubling of that, we've seen a steep increase in deaths recently. A quarter of those deaths have come since November 1st. Um and, you know, doctors, healthcare workers, emergency kind of like experts, the, the guy from Calgary specifically, they're begging for a two to four week circuit breaker lockdown before our healthcare system gets overwhelmed. Uh, I think we can agree, Lorian, that, that things are bad. And, yeah. um, and your piece was actually a, fresh, a breath of fresh air. You're saying that this kind of like terrible, incompetent COVID response from the Alberta government doesn't have to necessarily be this way, that, that Dr. Hinshaw has tools at her disposal to, to improve the response and save lives. So, so why don't you walk our audience through the kind of thesis of your piece? Sure. So, so before getting to the thesis, I mean, I think it's important to say that in an ideal world, the government would be managing this well, hand in hand with public officials, and it would be a, a cooperative response, because I think, you know, in that way, you're marrying together uh, democratic concerns with having elected officials make decisions with 
the best available science. And so if that was happening, that peace wouldn't exist. And frankly, if peace, if things weren't as dire as they are, that peace wouldn't exist. I wouldn't ordinarily dream of suggesting that, uh, you know, a public health official who is walking a difficult line between um, trying to, to, to work with the politicians who are in charge, but also to, to uh, have her decisions reflect science. I, I wouldn't ordinarily call something like that out, but um, in this case, we really are in a dire situation. And, and so the thesis of the piece is that um, gov- elected officials have chosen to give to uh, Dr. Hinshaw the power to um, take basically any action necessary to, to suppress this disease outbreak. And that was their democratic choice in giving that to her. Um, some provinces subject certain uh, medical officer decisions to ministerial approval. They didn't do that in Alberta. Um, some provinces more clearly divide up responsibilities between government and chief medical officers, and they, they don't do that. And so the, the thesis of the piece is that from a legal perspective, she could issue an order contrary to, to government wishes. Now, um, of course, there'd be the political side to manage of that, which, which I think we're going to get into. But the thesis of the piece is strictly legally. Um, she keeps telling the public that her role is an advisory role, and that is in the legislation as well. Um, but under Section 29 of, of the Public Health Act, which she has relied on to make all of her orders, there is this very generic power to, to do anything necessary to um, to limit the spread and, and that sort of thing. So you're saying that uh, potentially Dr. Hinshaw has the, the legal power given to her under the legislation that, that gives her her job and her power. She has the ability to, for instance, issue a two to four week circuit breaker lockdown, even, even if the government doesn't want that to happen. She could. I think if she went that far, uh, I, th- I think um, certainly the government... Um, you know, she may lose her job, um, but it, but it would be oh, if the, if the government truly didn't want that, then they could pass legislation um, to 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 undo her decision, and then it would be on them. Um, you know, it'd be they'd have to own and wear that decision. Um, but theoretically, she she could under the law pass that. I, but she could also do other things under the law that that I think maybe wouldn't be as likely to lead to to her getting fired or the government passing legislation to override her decisions. For example, something like a mask mandate is a purely public health decision. There really aren't economic consequences. And so despite their, if she ordered a mask mandate province-wide, despite their wishes, I'm not convinced they would fire her. Mm, yeah, it's, it's. I mean, everything is political and her position especially is political given the importance of the COVID response to the government of Alberta. Uh, but th- there was a section of your piece that drew uh, a lot of ire, even got the hackles of post-media columnist Don Braid up. I'm just going to read this section of your piece aloud now and, and just kind of uh, just just walk through a bit of a reaction to it. Sure. Quote, But perhaps the saddest case is Dr. Dina Hinshaw, who has done little to check Alberta's gung-ho premier, Jason Kenney. He has staunchly refused to impose restrictions, instead telling partygoers to knock it off and adopting a, quote, personal responsibility, unquote, approach to public health. Meanwhile, Alberta hit a record-breaking 919 cases in a single day and called off contact tracing outside of high-priority settings such as hospital, schools, or continuing care. 
a letter signed by over 70 doctors asking for a two-week lockdown to damp down the cases and allow contact tracers to catch up was ignored. While Dr. Hinshaw expressed, quote, concern and made recommendations, he seems unwilling to rock Kenny's boat. In her words, the chief medical officer of health is not a decision maker, but rather is just a, quote, advisor and someone who recommends. Not only is this wrong, but it is dangerously foolish. I think that is the piece that that the part of the of your piece that that Don Braid kind of quoted back to, you know, Dr. Hinshaw in a press conference. And, and, you know, now the UCP is like lighting their hair on fire saying, oh, my God, people are going after Dr. Hinshaw. But you, you stand by this, right? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, look, I don't. I didn't want it to get to this point. I didn't want to write that piece. I would prefer the government respond to this properly. I don't love the idea of calling out someone that I know is in a, in a difficult position. But at the same time, I mean, she's really been made the, the kind of face of decision making here. Um, even if she sees herself an advisor, she's the one sitting on the news, the the press conferences, telling us um, what we should be doing. And it concerns me that she, you know, in the press conference is, is saying, well, we've we've now imposed an order to limit gatherings to 15 in certain areas, because I think that tells the public that it's safe to gather with 15 people and to gather with as many different groups of 15 people as you like, because that's the law. And I think uh, I think if if the government is departing from her recommendations, then it's it's concerning to me that she's saying them like if that's a political decision to allow people to gather with as many groups of 15 as they like, then I think it would be better if it came from Chandra or Kenny, because then people would take it with a grain of salt. When it comes from her, my concern is that people now think it's safe to just hang out with 15 people all the time. And and it's not. There's no public health evidence to suggest that that's a safe number of people. I think I take her point that we're also concerned with mental health and with with, um, isolation and those issues. But I think that a smaller number, say five, um, would, would would deal with that isolation issue and, and they deal with the concern that, you know, if you're at home in a domestic violence situation and you're not seeing anybody else, then it would go undetected. But 15 is a lot of people, especially as we're coming into the Christmas party season. And so I think it's concerning that she gets on those press conferences and and says things that seem seem to me to probably come from a political place, but I think the public doesn't necessarily understand that. And I think they think that if she's saying something, that it's an, it's entirely science-based. And at this point, it just doesn't look that way. I think you framed an essential kind of problem here, right? Which is that Dr. Hinshaw is being used by the UCP to give a veneer of like science and authority to a lot of political decisions, right? And and the decisions that have been made uh, by this UCP government to reopen and to and to you know to, to the things that they've done in regards to reopening, you know, they brag about how little restrictions they've imposed, right? The fact those are those are political decisions, right? Like they've been very clear that they believe that the economy is the most important thing here and that they need to get the economy going again. Mm-hmm. And then when you trot out Dr. Hinshaw to to talk about how you're reopening and how these decisions are going to be implemented, these in fact. Uh, a lot of these decisions are in fact political decisions and not like, even if we accept Dr. Dina Hinshaw's, like, I am simply in a science advisor, a medical advisor role, which, which we obviously don't. But even if we accept that she is taking a a political um, 
role in these in the in the kind of government's rollouts that I think is a little unseemly. I completely agree. I think that I would much prefer a situation where you have Minister Shandro saying, look, here's the choices that we've made, and these choices balance economics with with medical science. And then for her to get up after that and say, you know, that's what the government is 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 willing to impose from an economic perspective. And, and, and those are important issues as well. Um, but what I'm telling you is that here is my best scientific opinion on what you should actually be doing. Um, and I think that the, that the public needs that kind of messaging because then they understand, well, just because the bars are open doesn't mean I should necessarily frequent them. Or, you know, just because I, I can go to the gym doesn't mean I, I have to, or I, you know, should go in the middle of the day when it's busy. Like, I think if, if, if there was one side telling us, you know, this is the provincial strategy that takes into account economics and health and everything else, and then she was purely giving her best scientific opinion to the public. Um, the public trusts her. And I, and, and I do think that even if she was recommending something that, that maybe was stricter than the regulations, they, they may be willing to, to follow that just because of the, the high level of trust that I think she really enjoyed until quite recently. I mean, I think I'm not the, the only one saying that the things I'm saying, there's, there's definitely some, some cracks in the facade, but I think at least then the public would understand better. But I think when she says something, they don't understand that, that there's, they don't, some people don't understand that there's political um, issues that, that uh, have been weighed against the science. I mean, I think she's put a huge hole in her own credibility and her own standing with Albertans by by going out and defending these ultimately incredibly political decisions from, you know, using her voice and using her, you know, uh, imprint and veneer of authority and, and scientific expertise. And it's hard to come back from that. And and pieces like yours, and then you have pieces like yours on top of it being like, it doesn't have to be this way. Our response can be better. There is a person with the power to save lives. That is why a piece like yours, I think, was, um, I mean, why I thought it was a necessary piece and why I enjoyed reading it, which is that like, we simply, Dr. Hinshaw simply doesn't have to accept what is happening. She has the power and she is simply choosing not to use it, right? That's right. And, and, you know, as I say, even short of her issuing um, legal orders that, that, that go against the government, I mean, there are other, there are other ways that, that I think we could, we could structure this to make clear what's political and what's not. And, you know, as, as, as I say, having uh, the minister make announcements about restrictions and, and then having her, you know, give, give the public purely public health information. And, and I think, um, I, I think that might be a way of, of dealing with that short of her making orders, but you know, it's getting dire and she does have the power to make orders. So, so I think that's, that's certainly on the table and in particular orders like masking or, um, or gathering limits that have no effect on the economy, um, seem, seem very much within her, within her wheelhouse because there's, there's no weighing of, of economic factors, of, of political factors in, in masking. There really shouldn't be. And that's one that really concerns me because we're coming up on the holidays and you have people who live in Calgary and Edmonton and other places with lots of cases, and they're going to be traveling home to their small towns that don't have the health infrastructure to see an influx of COVID cases. And because they don't have any COVID cases, don't have mask requirements. Yeah, I mean, I'm really terrified of what our case counts are going to be like between January, you know, 10th or January 5th to January 10th. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. 
uh, we are going to see another huge spike, right? And it's 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 scary, and it's going. I mean, we think it's bad now, but it is going to get worse. Lorian, I know you you wrote a, a provocative piece about a popular public figure. You, you probably expected that there was going to be, um, you know, some response and some pushback. Uh, but I think I think post media columnist and uh, a notable former scab Don Braid, uh, he came out kind of like writing a piece, essentially responding to your piece. He even he even uh, in one of the press conferences, actually asked a question to Dr. Hinshaw about your piece. And I'm just going to play that audio right now, and and then we can react to it. So let's just sure. let's just roll that tape. Uh, Dr. Hinshaw, um, there was an article in McLean's magazine uh, just last week, uh, which is uh, rather fiercely critical of you. It's surprising to see, actually, but the argument that was made was that uh, you and all the other medical officers of health across the country have many powers that you're not using because you're in the thrall of uh, provincial politicians. Uh, and uh, I, first of all, I'd like to ask if you if you have read it. And uh, if uh, what your response is, uh, whether you have read it or not. Thank you for the question. I have read the article and my response would be that my job description is very clear in the Public Health Act. And the Public Health Act in Alberta says the Chief Medical Officer of Health shall monitor the health of the population and make recommendations to the Minister of Health to promote and protect the health of the population and to prevent disease and injury. So the fact that uh, the job that I am doing is making recommendations is absolutely in line with my legislated role. And I can promise Albertans that I have always, in every recommendation I've made, considered the full health of every person in this province. Um, COVID is a concern and the other health needs of Albertans are also a concern. Um, and I strive every day to do my best for every single Albertan. Okay, so so you, you wanted me to react to that. So I guess the first thing I wanted to address is is, is what you said about um, you know I, I probably knew this this was going to cause controversy and and I did and it made me really uncomfortable. I mean, um, prior to this uh, article, you know, generally speaking, the views on my opinion work and you know various op eds and commentaries I've written have really been on party lines. That you know the UCP doesn't like what I'm writing, particularly about things like private health care. But generally speaking, um, you know, health professionals and others tend to like it. Um, and so I did know that this was going to alienate and draw criticism from some people that had previously, you know, uh, you know, said they liked my work or I knew they liked my work. And, you know, I actually had a moment the day before this this article uh, was accepted for publication when I, I said to a colleague, like, I kind of hope this doesn't get accepted because I'm not I'm not a person that intentionally writes provocative things because I like attention. Um, and so I knew this was this was going to attract criticism. And I did get a couple of hateful emails and, and tweets. And, um, you know, a lot of the, the people who normally support my work were silent, which which I think speaks volumes. And so, um, yeah. And so I didn't do it because um, because of that. And, and actually, I don't like that. It makes me uncomfortable. Um, and, and hearing that interview, it made me uncomfortable. But it, it, it needed to be said. Like, you know, if, if the numbers were, you know, a quarter what they were, a third what they were, if we were back where we were in July, I wouldn't have even dreamed of writing that. So I guess that's 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 the first kind of framing piece. Um, with respect, though, to her specific answer to that question, she is talking about, um, it's, either, it's either Section 13 or 14 of the Public Health Act, which does talk about her having an advisory role. And that's absolutely correct. 
but she also has the power to issue orders under Section 29. And if her role was merely as an advisor, then it would be the government writing public health orders, not her. Um, but if you look at all of the orders that have been issued to date, it says, you know, under Section 29 of the Public Health Act, I have the authority to, to do anything necessary to prevent the spread of communicable diseases, and, and here's what I'm doing. Um, if, if she's purely an advisor, then she shouldn't be the one making orders, and we shouldn't see her on TV every day. It should be, or if she's on TV, it should be in an educational kind of function, not in a here are my legal orders function. If it's that she just advises and the government makes legal makes the legal decisions, then they should be the ones at the press conferences. And so you can't really have it both ways that she merely advises, but then somehow she's the face of this and the legal decisions come from her desk with her signature. And I mean, some of these Section 29 orders are notable, right? Like the uh, the uh, the limit to 15 people in a social gathering, that was in an order issued by Dr. Hinshaw under Section 29 of the Act. The uh, the order issued by Dr. Hinshaw that uh, that changed the uh, the rules of engagement around uh, how many kids in schools. Like I, I can't remember the exact specifics of that order, but I remember it was very controversial at the time. It was kind of changed at the last minute about... Uh, mm-hmm about kids in schools, that was an order from Dr. Hinshaw that was done again, you know, by her under section 29 of the act. She has the power to issue these orders is what you're saying. And she has used this power, but not in a way that has ever um, kind of not in a, in a role or a way that has ever kind of gone against the government in any kind of fashion. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely, that's absolutely right. But again, if the government wanted to make her decisions subject to ministerial approval, they could have put that in the legislation. And um, and some provinces with respect to emergency orders do that. So so had they want, so some people say that her doing this would be undemocratic. And, and I do see their point to some extent that, you know, a bureaucrat kind of stepping over the government does, does kind of raise those concerns. At the same time, though, it was a democratic decision of elected officials to not really circumscribe her power under Section 29 and to have her be the one issuing these orders as opposed to them being orders in council from from the government or regulations passed by the government. And fundamentally, people are dying, right? She is a doctor. You know, we are getting close to the point of like of a New York or of an Italy where people are just going to start dying in hospital hallways because there just simply isn't enough people to take care of them. And there is a there is a moral and ethical um kind of boundary or frame on which to act here. And again, we're, we're, we're not necessarily at that point, but when we do get to that point, I hope Dr. Hinshaw realizes that she has tools available to her. Well, and, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, apart from the Public Health Act, um, as, a, as, as a physician, there are certain ethical duties that, that come with that, with, that, with that job. And when you're having conversations with patients, for example, um, and getting their consent to, to particular treatments, you have an obligation to provide them with accurate, inf- accurate information. And, and so obviously this is a different role than that, that kind of doctor-patient relationship. But the, the kind of similar ethical issues arise of providing truthful and as scientifically accurate as, as possible information. Um, and, and so I think, I think maybe there are those, those ethical issues starting to arise. And um, you know, one wonders if, if perhaps she does have a line in her mind where, um, you know, this will have gone past her ethical line and, and she might speak out. And there have been um, many 
resignations in the U.S. of, of uh, health officials um, in response to some of the government's efforts down there. So, so I think certainly there, there's a precedence for, for speaking up. And at the same time that your piece came out, uh, CBC uh, Calgary came out with a piece uh, with the headline, former Alberta chief medical officer of health says job involves walking political tightrope. And, and the deck of this piece kind of lays that out. Dr. Chim- Jim Talbot lists three options if you disagree with government, quit, be fired, or work behind the scenes. Uh, this piece, I think, brings up a lot of the same arguments that people who disagree with your piece bring up. And uh, and before we get into it, I think with respect to, to Dr. Jim Talbot, uh, he was never, even though he is a former chief medical officer of health, he was never the chief medical officer of health during a deadly global pandemic that the government botched the response to. But I think, uh, you know, his government can be response, his, his arguments can be summed up like this. Hinshaw has got to do what she's told or she'll be fired. And Hinshaw is working her very best behind the scenes. Um, I mean, what were, what were your thoughts on this piece and on those two kind of like counter arguments specifically? Yeah. So, so certainly I read the piece and, um, I think maybe the difference, one of the key differences between our piece and that piece is that ours was really focused on the legal powers that, that exist. And we really didn't get into the complex kind of political position that she's in, uh, where she directly reports to government, but then also has these, has these legal and legal powers and ethical duties. I think his his piece gets more into that political tightrope. I don't think that's an unfair metaphor at all. I think she is in an incredibly difficult position, and I I, I do think he is he's correct that um, that I mean maybe maybe I, maybe I see a riff on one of his options. So his options are quit, and and I think. Um, you know, we've, we've seen that in the U.S. Some of the uh, public health officials have quit because they, they disagree with what the government is doing and just can't deal with it, with it anymore. So there is some precedence for that. I think the get fired is, is the one that I might, I might riff on a little bit because I think there's maybe things that she, she, could, she could do, um, as I said earlier, maybe pass, passing a masking order or um, passing uh, an order limiting gatherings because those don't have really any effect on the economy and those are pure public health orders and so the government may not fire her over those um but but it is a risk it's always a risk that that if you exercise these powers in a way that that government doesn't like that that you can that being fired is is a risk so i accept that that's that that's true um i do think he's probably correct that she's she's working behind the scenes i mean i don't i don't think that she's fully on board probably with what the government is doing. And so she's probably giving them recommendations that maybe don't always align with, with what they're actually doing. And I think maybe she sees that as well, if I work behind the scenes, um, nobody worse than me is going to be put into this job. And, and I think, you know, for some amount of time, that's, that's probably a fair approach. Um, But, but there gets to a point where what the government is doing is just so contrary to science and people are dying that, I just think that you must feel compelled to do something, whether it's it's speak out or issue a legal order or quit or something. Like I, I think there must be a line when we've just departed way too far from science that you just can't stand behind what the government is doing. I mean, in in regards to the to the getting fired thing, I mean, Jason Kenney can read a poll. Uh, he knows that his government response to COVID-19 has been incredibly poor, poorly received. Uh, Leger just received a poll, and I think 39% of people approved of the government of Alberta's response to COVID-19, whereas every other government in Canada, I think, was like plus 60 or plus 65. Yeah. Um, 
you know, they, they, they know that, that they fucked this up and that, that if they were to fire the public face of their response to the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, they know that they would face even more uh, opprobrium for doing that. And, you know, I, I guess the other thing is that like the working behind the scenes point is like, one, it's totally opaque. We have no idea. Right. Yeah. We simply, we simply do not know. And based on the results, I don't know if you can make the argument that her working behind the scenes has been incredibly effective because our response is the worst in the country. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, like I can just like point to the daily update and say her working behind the scenes has got us this far. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think the other thing too is, is this idea that's kind of out there that if, if she, if she were fired or she quit or whatever, that they would put in somebody worse well, I, I think that the public, though, might not trust that worse person. And so we might not be worse off. Like, I, I don't know if we're if we're worse off having her in this role and people trust what she's saying and, and probably shouldn't. Like, you shouldn't trust someone that's saying you can gather with 15 people um, at this point. But if the if the UCP were to fire her and put someone else in, I think the public would would see that person's recommendations for what they are they would see them as political recommendations and would take them with the appropriate grain of salt. So in some ways we might not actually be worse off with um, a yes man that the, that the UCP appointed if, if she weren't in that role. Yeah. Like I'm sure it could get worse. Uh, but like at, at the end of the day, if she was to be either removed or she resigned or whatever, uh, I think that person would be rightly viewed as a, as a stooge and yeah. And uh, and I think that this government's COVID response, the eyes of this response and the view of the public would be even further diminished, even further diminished, which is like, and it's already quite, quite low. <laughs> so I think that's the kind of like, you kind of run through the decision tree on those three, um, you know, arguments that that uh, Jim Talbot makes, right? Uh, quit, be fired or work behind the scenes. And, um, you know, I, I, it's probably a hard decision for Dr. Hinshaw to make, but uh, I think when you look at work behind the scenes, it simply hasn't been effective. And so quit yeah. or be fired are really the options on the table. Well, and, and, that's, and that's really what we explore is that, is that get fired option that, you know, what can you legally do that might result in you getting fired, but maybe there's less, you know, there's lesser versions of that or less restrictive things that you can do that wouldn't actually get you fired. So, so I think that's the one that we're really put, we really pushed on in the piece. Yeah. And so finally, I think you and I have kind of spent the past half hour, you know, roasting the government for their failure to respond to this pandemic effectively. And, uh, and rightly so. I mean, it's been an incredible fuck up. People are dying. Like I said, a quarter of the deaths we've seen from COVID-19 in the past, uh, over the, the course of this pandemic have happened in the past 18 days. Uh, there was a day recently where 20 people died in one day from COVID-19. Like just, just tragedy is literally unfolding around us. But if, if we were premier of Alberta, uh, you know, what would we be doing to address this pandemic? And I think it's worth kind of talking about the possibilities of how we would make our lives better <laughs> because yeah. it's, it's easy to bitch, but I do want to put solutions out into the world. So, so Lauren, why don't you lead us off? If you sure. were in charge, what, what are a couple, just pick three things that you would do off that off. There's, I know there's lots of things we would do, yeah. but keep it focused to a couple of top level okay. things. Well, so, so, so you frame it as if I were the premier of Alberta, let's assume I'm not the current premier, because if I were the current premier, this everything is, everything's going great. But if I were, if I were uh, some other premier of Alberta, I think, 
I think one of the things they really need to get on top of is the holidays that are coming up. And um, people are going to be going to parties and then they're going to go home and visit relatives all over the province and and potentially in other provinces as, as well. And uh, I, I think they need to get a handle on that. Um, and to me, um, you know, I, as I said before, a province-wide mask rule, I think, is, is crucial to that because, you know, you're going to small towns that don't have any cases and potentially bringing your cases from the city. But I also think the gatherings. We can't have, and, and really it'll start, you know, around next weekend, weekend after, people will start attending Christmas parties. And I think the government needs to crack down on those on those gatherings to scale the number back and to to do some enforcement. I mean, at the beginning, I didn't kind of like this idea of people watching each other and snitching on each other and, and that sort of thing. But but I think these Christmas parties are really just going to be a huge problem. So I think that's one area that they they need to get on top of. Um, another area is, is this ongoing issue in, in continuing care. I mean, these people are not just because these people are are older and are towards the end of their end, end of their life expectancy. And you know, we heard Kenny make some comments at one point that that sort of seemed to diminish the fact that um, people in their in their eighties were were dying from COVID because that's sort of the average life expectancy anyway. And I, like, but these are not disposable people, and they're suffering in these in these facilities. We have um, a facility in Edmonton that uh, it's somewhere around 90% of the residents have tested positive. There's going to be a whole slew of deaths coming from that. And I think that it's, it, it, it's just tragic the way that, that that's been, been approached. And, um, you know, if it's, if it's a matter of ramping up inspection, if it's a matter of kicking out the for-profit operator and, and putting a government operator in place, like they can't just let these, let these continue and sort of throw their hands up and treat it as, inevitable that once once um, once uh, COVID is in these homes, it's just going to ravage them because that, that isn't the case. I mean, there's evidence from Ontario showing that when COVID gets into a long-term care facility, the amount of, of residents that it affects and the mortality is linked to whether it's a, a for-profit facility or not. Mm-hmm. And so clearly... Clearly, there are things that can be done once COVID is in to, to limit mortality and to limit its its spread. And the government just has to get a handle on that because these aren't disposable people just because they're they're old. So yeah, maybe those, just, are, those are two big things. Yeah, let me just jump in with a couple. We can just kind of keep going back and forth. Sure. But sure. I think pay, paid sick leave is absolutely, absolutely important, right? Like we've we we heard Hinshaw in a press conference the other day saying whatever nine or third, I can't remember the exact number, but some percentage of people and a not insignificant percentage of people going to work with symptoms because they have to because they need to make money so that they don't starve or go, or become homeless. Paid paid sick leaves. So like the like when you get sick and you have to stay home because you have to stay home when you're sick now, remember, <laughs> you uh you need to be paid. You you require money to be to flow to you if you are sick and you are staying home because again, you need to not starve to death and you need to not be out on the street homeless. Uh, this government has firmly resisted paid sick leave. I think they've referred people to a, a small federal program that I think gives people $450 a week or something. Uh, not enough. Um, I mean, I think the immediate two to four week circuit breaker lockdown that's been proposed by numerous uh, health professionals and emergency experts and healthcare workers is an immediate step that can be taken to uh, to halt this the, the, like the deadly uh, upward spiral that we are in when it comes to case counts. 
Um, again, if you're going to do that, you're going to have to pay people to stay home. Yeah. Uh, I think you know the, the government says, oh, we couldn't possibly do a circuit breaker lockdown because of the costs. Um, the costs of not having a circuit breaker lockdown is that your your healthcare system starts failing, people start dying in hallways. The, the cost of giving people $500 a week or $800 a week, whatever it is, to stay home is going to be less than in the, what the long run human cost is going to be. And, and, uh, and I'll do one more and then you can jump back in. And that's, that's, that's all hands on deck with contact tracing. Um, the contact tracing system is broken and it is an absolutely incredibly important part of having an affected COVID-19 response. We are essentially flying blind right now. We have no idea where our COVID cases are actually happening. We have data from the past. We don't have data from now. Uh, something like 80 some percent of all cases in the past week are coming from unknown exposures. So you're going to have to second people from other government departments. You're going to have to liter- actually start hiring people. They, they've, they've talked for the past weeks about hiring 400 new contract tracers. They have like 22 job uh, applications on the AHS website that have contact tracing in the job description. Um, you know, it, it is it is time to damn the torpedoes and and start hiring people en masse because there's 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 training time, there's police check time, there's just like getting integrated and up to speed time. Even if you were to hire 400 contact tracers tomorrow, they probably wouldn't be on the phones until the middle of December. Uh, your turn. Go ahead. Yeah. So riffing on a, on a couple of those, I mean, I think that some of these things actually are are really in the government's interest. I mean, I think they seem to have created this false dichotomy between the economy. And on the one hand, and public health on the other, but some lockdowns yeah, on the yeah, other, yeah. Some of the things that you propose actually are in their interest. And so, for example, you know, you highlighted the the um, paying people to stay home versus the the human cost of infection, but there's also the economic cost of infection, and it, it, treating people in an ICU on ventilators for weeks is really really expensive. And so in, in some ways, I mean, I'd love to see an economist sort of take this on and number crunch this, um, paying people X number of dollars weekly to, to stay home when they're sick one, or, or paying people to stay home during a, a two-week lockdown. One wonders if that's not actually cheaper than the healthcare costs that, that, that will result. And, you know, for a government that loves, you see, apparently, <laughs> I mean, the war room suggests otherwise, but from a government that purportedly loves saving money and doing what's most economically efficient, I think they need to do that analysis, um, and and it may actually be in their best interest to to do this. The other um, kind of riff on a lockdown that that I'm seeing floated that I think is is interesting, and I think um, is certainly something that should be on the table is there's some discussion of having a lockdown, um, letting kids out of school a week early, um, and having sort of a 10 week or 14 day clear before Christmas, because people are going to see their relatives anyway, whether it's safe or not. And this would, you know, the idea is that this would compel them to, to, to do that safely. Um, and then the other thing I might say is building on your, your sort of plea for them to fix this contact tracing problem. I think um, not only is it, is it essential for, for the purposes of obviously limiting the spread and, and bringing case numbers down, but the other thing is, is that if this if this government wants to avoid total shutdowns of the economy, which it, it obviously wants to do, one of the best ways to do that is through effective contact tracing. Because one of the only you know, one of the reasons that a total shutdown is on the table is because we don't know where cases are coming from and we can't trace them and stamp them out. If we had 
um, you know, contract tracing was, was that you know, very efficient and, and people were finding out right away and we were able to stop cases right away and we knew where the outbreaks were coming from, then we, we could actually potentially be quite safe with not with something less than a, a total lockdown with much more targeted protections. But this, the bar closes a few hours early and kids can't play hockey. Like, well, we don't really know how good the science is for that because we don't know where people are getting cases from. And so you can't have evidence-based targeted measures if you don't know where the cases are coming from. So we need that contact tracing both to limit infections but also to have better public health measures in place. Yeah, and to riff on one of your first points about long-term care, uh, the private versus public long-term care, yeah, nationalized long-term care tomorrow with no compensation. Uh, the, the the private uh, for-profit long-term care facilities that exist, again, have proven themselves to be negligent in keeping people alive during a pandemic. You have you have every, every incentive to simply shut them down and take them over and give the people that are working there uh, good government unionized jobs and to remove the profit motive from that industry because uh, you know there was an incident in Winnipeg where uh, six ho- six ambulances were called to a Rivera owned home and it was it was literally a fucking horror show people yeah. were like dead you know undergoing lividity and like and rigor mortis like outside yeah. on on stretchers and, and Rivera, uh, I, Rivera owns the facility in Edmonton I talked about earlier with the 90% positive cases. They also own the site, uh, the facility in Calgary that was the site of Alberta's biggest uh, biggest outbreak in the in the summer, Mackenzie Town. And they also own the home that, uh, they own one, the home right now in, in Ontario that has um, one of their largest case counts. And they own the facility in Mount Royal in Calgary that has a bunch of cases. So yes, like, you know, some companies seem especially egregious, but anyway, I'll let you, sorry, I interjected. No, there. no, you're totally right. They're, the Rivera is, is one of the worst actors uh, and, and, you, and you're right to highlight them. Uh, and when you start making the arguments for nationalization, you do need to talk about the worst actors because otherwise people will say, well, what about this? And what about this? Well, it's like, I don't care. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, I mean, another thing that they could be doing tomorrow, the government can do tomorrow of Alberta is, is just bringing the federal COVID app. It's a travesty that that hasn't uh, arrived yet. It seems to be pure obstinance and hatred of government of Justin Trudeau. Um, I, I really have no other way to explain that one. And you brought up students uh, earlier and kind of letting them out a week earlier. I think that one is 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 correct. Uh, and other jurisdictions have been doing that. But I think something that could be done when students come back is to hire more teachers and to spread students out. And then have school and other facilities that aren't schools, and, and and take some of the arguments that were made by the Alberta NDP and their plan on their their safe school reopening plan, which is actually quite good. Mm-hmm. Uh, those need to seriously be considered as well, because I think it's undeniable that schools are driving a lot of infections since they've re- reopened. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're right. The school the school situation is is concerning, and I think a lot of people unreasonably fixate on the mortality and you'll hear some people say well it's not really worse than than you know getting the flu or or those sorts of things and people die from that too but but I think you're right I think um the schools concern me both as a source of transmission but also because we don't really know the long-term health effects of of COVID and, and we're starting to see um you know some evidence that it's not good um but but I especially worry about it at a, at a really young age, how 
um, how contracting COVID might might affect you in the long term. And so that concerns me me about schools. And I, I think you're right. I, you know, we have all of these facilities that either are closed or should be closed. Um, you know, massive gymnasiums in in fitness facilities and that kind of thing. And um, you know, and and it seems to me that you're right that we you know we can hire more teachers or you know, if you have a, if, if you have a classroom that's spread out between, you know, two big gymnasiums, let's say at a, at a city owned fitness facility, well, you can have a teacher in one room and an educational assistant in the other, and, and they can kind of tag team, like there's other things we can, we can do that, that, that I think, um, you know, would, would spread kids out more and, and maybe protect them better. I've, I've also heard that there's ventilation problems in lots of schools, um, so, so I think the school one is a big one and, and one that the government really didn't, didn't act very quickly on. And, and, you know, the minister of education is, is largely unseen. Like people, people are wondering where she is in all of this. You, you really don't, don't hear a lot from her, um, you know, apart from, yeah, schools, schools are fine to, to run with, with some additional precautions. And, 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 and I think, I think it is concerning and you're starting to hear about, um, schools that can't even run because so many teachers are are uh, you know they don't have enough teachers to, to yeah teach. they're in quarantine right sublists yeah I I think so I think the schools are, are a big issue and um, I think the schools we really have to get a handle on that in order to to you know keep the economy running which is something the government obviously wants but I also think that you have to have schools running safely um, or you're just going to continue to exacerbate the gendered aspects of this pandemic. Um, you know, there's all sorts of studies showing how um, the ch- you know, children being out of school disproportionately affects women in their and their careers. And, you know, especially, um, you know, if you're talking about two weeks, three weeks, maybe that's not such a career disruption. But when you're going on eight months, nine months, 10 months, um, you know, the, there's huge uh, career aspects, aspects to that. Agreed. I think there are a couple of other really big ones that I think we're going to close on here, and and, and this would broadly being uh, stop with the the ideology. Uh, this government has, you know, picked fight with doctors, has laid off healthcare workers, is in the midst of privatizing the system, uh, the healthcare system. They're in the midst of building the largest private hospital in like history, like in Canada. Uh, you know, stop the privatization of healthcare and invest in more public infrastructure and invest in more healthcare workers and build more slack into the system. Because if there's one thing that this pandemic has shown, it's that running your hospitals and your healthcare system efficiently, quote unquote, uh, is bad when things like this happen, because then there isn't the human resources and the infrastructure needed to handle these shocks to the system. And you you want your healthcare system to be able to handle a shock, as we've seen. And and ultimately, I think uh, the goal here, and this is this is an open debate. This this is a debate within the like, you know, the the pointy headed kind of COVID community is kind of like management of COVID versus a COVID zero goal. And I think the COVID zero goal is ultimately where our our focus needs to be. Right, like the COVID management is just like oh, with targeted measures and with the with the right data and the right measures, we, we should be able to manage it until we get a vaccine. And in my view, that that simply means that we just have we we're just sacrificing people's health and their lives. Because again, you make a great point about we did we just simply don't know what the long term implications of having COVID are, what it does to your brain, what it does to your other organs, your lungs, uh, your heart. Uh, there are some scary stories coming out about just like just these wacky things that are happening to otherwise healthy people that have recovered 
quote unquote from COVID uh, that are either dropping dead or severely impacting their quality of life and their ability to function. And so the, the COVID zero goal is ultimately where our focus needs to be. What do you think? Yeah, I, I absolutely, I absolutely agree. I think, I think um, we've seen, and we've seen better results from countries that have had that mindset. I mean, New Zealand is, seems to be constantly held up as a, as an example of a country that managed this well. And, and really that seemed to be their, their approach. I think, you know, the other sort of long-term thing I would say, in addition to this sort of COVID zero idea is that I think that COVID has exposed a lot of cracks in the healthcare system that maybe were there before, but weren't just, weren't so visible, and a lot of cracks in um, just generally our social system and, and how we treat vulnerable groups. And I think, you know, long term, it would be a shame if we didn't learn anything from COVID and, and didn't fix some of these societal problems that COVID has merely illuminated, but that were there all along. Mm, agreed. Lorian, uh, thank you for coming on the show. We we really appreciate you taking the time. And for your piece, your piece was really good too. It'll obviously be in the show notes and we encourage people to read it if they haven't read it already. Uh, Lauren, what's the best way for people to kind of like follow along with your work and your takes on the world? And, you know, um, yeah. you know now is the time to kind of plug yourself and, and anything else that you have to, to plug. Sure. So um, certainly I can be uh, followed at uh, on Twitter at uh, Lorian underscore H. My last name's too long for to have all the characters in there. So it's Lorian underscore H. Um, and that's, of course, a place where you can find uh, some of the commentaries I'm doing on the healthcare system. So shorter op-ed pieces. Um, but that's also the, the place where you can find my more scholarly peer-reviewed uh, stuff, which, which has been on the back burner. But, but certainly there's pieces in the, in the pipeline that will, that, will, will appear, that will appear there. Awesome. And folks, uh, if you like this podcast and you want to keep hearing more podcasts like it, uh, one thing you can do that really helps us out is to share this podcast with your friends. Uh, word of mouth advertising really helps us out. And so uh, so please, uh, through whatever means you think is best, uh, get this podcast into the ears of other people who you think need to hear it. Um, the other big thing that, that really helps us out and helps keep this, not just this podcast, but the whole independent media project of the Progress Report going is becoming a donor. And joining the 250 uh, other folks who help keep this independent media project going. And so to do that, you go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons. Uh, you put in your credit card and contribute. We would really appreciate it. Like I said, uh, Jim and I really uh, like having a roof over our heads. We like eating food. And your donations make things make that happen. Uh, also, if you have any notes, uh, thoughts, things you think I need to hear, uh, things you think I messed up on, uh, I'm very easy to reach. You can reach me on Twitter at Duncan Kinney, and you can reach me by email at uh, Duncan K at progressalberta.ca. Thanks so much to Cosmic Family Communist for our theme. Thank you for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>